Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. That awkward pause was great. I wanted to make sure that the live stream was for sure on track with us before we started. So let's stand together as we begin our time of worship this morning. We're going to read part of Psalm 46, the first seven verses. So let's read this together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah.
always good um, as we move into a time of confession in our service um, we recognize that while God is holy we are not we are sinners um, living in a broken and sinful world um, so we're going to read a confession together um, it should come up on the screen so let's read this together and then we'll sing this song we confess Lord God that you are king and we are not as it is written the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. We confess that whether we live in wealth or in poverty, we are all impoverished in our souls from sin. For you tell us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As a church, we long for the day in which you will make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, come. that fade are never enough but then you came along and you put me back together and every desire is now satisfied here in your love let's sing there's nothing oh there's
distractions would be moved from our minds this morning, and that we would just worship you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. The reading for today is from John chapter 7. Thank you. Yeah, let's stand for the reading of the word. Forgot that part. 
John chapter 7, verse 40 to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Nick. Hi, uh, my name is Trey. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, before we jump in, I just wanted to remind everybody, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. So we'll have two services, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Uh, they'll be 30 minutes long. Um, don't come with your ashes already on your forehead. That was a joke. Uh, thank you. Thank you. You can't laugh now that I said it was a joke. Uh, we're going to jump in in a minute, but first I just, uh, Frank said this last week, and I just want to give some light on this. We went to camp last weekend, um, and it was insane. This was the first time Redemption Arcadia student ministry has ever gone to camp. We've gone on trips. We've gone and stayed in cabins before. This is the first time we went to a camp, and the purpose of this camp was to do two main things. It was to help the kids grow in their relationship with God and help them grow in relationship together. Uh, it's kind of like living the great commandment, loving God and loving people. And that was the goal of camp, and I think we absolutely did that. Uh, we also have a video so you can see a lot of uh, how camp went.
Yeah, that was, that was basically, in a nutshell, what happened at camp. <laughs> uh, it was, thank you, yeah, it was super fun. The guy who actually made that video also made this song. Super talented dude. I don't even know the guy's name, but kudos to him. If he's like watching this on the live show, I don't know. Um, but uh, Nate, uh, one of the pastors at North uh, Hills Community Church, he was the one who was preaching. He did an incredible job at engaging with the students. Um, and then ultimately it led to, like you saw, it was hope in the dark. It led to having hope in Christ, um, which was the foundation of our camp and what we got to talk to our, our boys and our girls about in our own cabin times. So it was fantastic. And also, if you saw that gun thing, so that's, uh, they shoot tennis balls at kids. So like, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're accepting job applications, but if you want to shoot kids with tennis balls for a living, that's, <laughs> that's what they do at Prescott Pines, but all right. <clears throat> so I will say thank you so much for parents and families that gave and made that happen. Um, that really served our student ministry well. If you've had a conversation with me about student ministry, you'll know I, I don't believe that it's effective to try and push for discipleship without a relationship. Um, you need a relationship, especially with kids, and most kids are really learning how to trust people well. And when we get to go to camp, we get to build those relationships with kids for the purpose of discipleship. So if it weren't for our family to send us, our families to send us, it wouldn't happen. So thank you guys. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that we've been going through John. We're now in John 7. If you have your Bibles, open to John 7. We're going to start in verse 40, but uh, I'm going to kind of recap what we've kind of gone through. Jesus has over and over given these identifications of him being God with his mouth and then doing things that line up with that. So he says that he's God in all these different ways. Some of them are contextual, and so then we've unpacked those, and some of them have been just outright and, and then he also does things that um, go along with that. One of, one of them that we read about and we got to talk about was Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, we got to read about and hear about Jesus healing people. He healed this guy at the uh, pool of Bethesda, which um, he wasn't able to move uh, because he was paralyzed. Jesus heals him. It was on the Sabbath. They get mad at Jesus because you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus is still about making people whole. And that's what we learned on that. Uh, we talked about Jesus feeding a bunch of people. It says he fed the 5,000, but we know that was just accounting for the men. So of the families, it could have been ten to 12,000 people there that he fed off of a miracle. Uh, things only God could have done. And all this is him identifying himself as the God of Israel in the way that God provided for them. Uh, we read about Jesus making claims that he's the bread of life. If you want to have eternal life, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Let's go. Um, and then we, we kind of come up to chapter 7, and we pick up with this huge festival where there's this Feast of Booths, or the, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's essentially to celebrate God's providence. And it ends with this, this ritual um, where they take from a pool, they take this big bucket of water, and they pour it on a rock, and then they hit the rock with sticks. Frank talk, talked about it last week. And it's to symbolize... Uh, looking back to Moses, hitting this rock with his staff and it pouring out water in the middle of the desert. God providing need the, for the needs of God's people in the midst of a desert. And so they're celebrating that and looking forward to God doing that in the future. There's a, and you'll see there's a lot of connections with God revealing himself in, in like with water. Uh, and you'll see there's a lot of connections with rocks and uh, water coming out of rocks. So of all this, we kind of pick up in the end of chapter 7, um, and in verse 4, well, we'll jump into verse 40, but I just want to say this. Today we're going to talk about division. We divide on a lot of things in life, um, and we like, we like to only say that Jesus preached unity, and he did. But Jesus also came causing division. Of course, the first time I preached by myself, we shut down the church for six weeks, and then now I get to preach on division. So, I'm excited. Uh, verse 40, it says this. I don't know if the, there we go. It'll be up on the screen. Follow along in your Bibles if you have them. When they heard these words, pause, they heard these words. Every time they references something, I like to jump back and read what that was. So, 
So up here, um, if you go back a few verses to verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus says at the end of the Feast of Booths, I'm the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. I am in the flesh God's provision for God's people. So he makes this huge claim that he's that living water that they're pouring on the rock. I'm the, I am that, and I give that to you. Eternal life, me, come to me. Huge claims. And so then, verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So there's, it looks like there's three different types of people. There's people who think he's the prophet, he's the guy, John the Baptist, the, the one to come before the Messiah. There's people saying, no, 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 he is the Messiah. And then there's people saying, no way, he can't be, because of this is why. But really, the first two groups are really one group. Both the prophet or the Christ, whether they knew him as the Christ or not, right at that moment, they were believing that Jesus was the path for salvation for God's people. So there's, there's people who are receptive to what Jesus is saying and trying to embrace him, and there's people who are outright rejecting him. If you notice in verse 43, it says, there was a division among the people over him. He didn't say divisions. So there's, there's, John is showing there's two main things. Jesus is dividing here. And what's interesting is the people who are rejecting Jesus, they're fixated on something that they think that they know. And they're wrong, but they think that they know it so much that they're willing to throw out everything else that he's claiming to be God, that he's healing people, that he's doing things nobody can just do. But they're throwing it all out because they think they know something. That's an interesting point for me in my heart. But we know as they say, oh, well, he's from, from Galilee. Well, we know he grew up in Nazareth. But where is he actually from? He's from Bethlehem. He, if, apparently these people hadn't watched Charlie Brown and the reading of Luke 2. Jesus goes to Bethlehem, well, in Mary's belly, is born in Bethlehem. They retreat to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill the babies because he heard of the king of Israel being born. And then they... They, so they're there quietly for a couple years, and then they come up back to Nazareth. I would imagine that it probably wasn't known by all, hey, we're bringing back the king of Israel. Oh, yeah, and the guy, the predecessor, Herod, of the, he was going to kill this guy. They're probably not, it's probably, they probably haven't proclaimed it all, all that much, and so that's, that's why I'm guessing these people aren't super knowledgeable of where Jesus was born, but they know he talks like a Galilean, he looks like a Galilean, um, and so then they're thinking, I know that you're a Galilean, so you couldn't be, you could, there's no way that you could be the Christ because he has to come from Bethlehem. Um, and there's an interesting little verse at the end. And some of them wanted to arrest them. If you're just checking in now and you weren't here last week, uh, I'm going to read one more verse from last week's text. Uh, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So when Jesus stands up at the Feast of Booths to make this claim, there's officers there to arrest him. And so then what they hear Jesus say is that he's the living water. And then they, we're going to about to read about how they don't arrest him. So this is where this is coming from. The Pharisees are trying to arrest Jesus because people are saying maybe he's the Christ, maybe he's not. And they're like, hey, we've got to get rid of this guy. So they send uh, officers. The officers are there. I would imagine some people are seeing the officers and knowing who the officers work for, the Pharisees. They're probably siding with the Pharisees um, in a rejection with Jesus, but also looking for personal gain among, uh, gain among their peers. They want to be recognized by the Pharisees as well. They're siding with the Pharisees in the midst of this. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45. The officers 
Then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered. Now, if I was ordered to do something by an authority over me, and I didn't do it, you better believe I'm coming up with good excuses as to why I didn't do it. And I'm not going to say something that's going to anger the authority that told me to do something and I didn't do it. I'm going to try and like make please them somehow. I, I mean, you can imagine there's a huge bunch of people. I didn't want to start a scene. And so I, I just left them there. That is not what the officers say. What the officers say angers the Pharisees. So you know that it wasn't a tactful move. It was a move of, of honesty. So what did they say? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. That is profound. These officers have listened to these Pharisees preaching and their sermons. And they straight up told the Pharisees to their face, this guy spoke way better than you. Nobody's ever spoke like this. You can imagine this would sting the Pharisees. And yet they still said it. So there, I could imagine them being in trouble. And I can imagine why the Pharisees respond the way they did. But no one ever speaks like Jesus. I could tell you why. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking. There's a difference when some man just speaks. Or a woman just speaks. This is the God of the universe in the flesh speaking. And they can feel it. He's speaking with the authority as the agent of creation. So naturally, they're going to, this guy speaks differently. Here's something that I've heard a lot of people say. Uh, Jesus was just, he was a good teacher, but I don't know about that son of God stuff. I don't know about that. Well, you know what? Jesus won't let you think that he's just a teacher. Listen to the claims he made. I don't think Gandhi ever said, hey, eat my flesh and you'll live forever. Gandhi never said that. Buddha never said, hey, if you come to me I'm gonna make, and you believe in me, I'm going to make your heart turn into a, a, a place where rivers of living water come out of. If he was a teacher, he was the worst teacher. He said some crazy things because he was either say, telling the truth or he was saying crazy things. So if he's telling the truth, and if you want more of this kind of like linear pattern of thinking, you can read Case for Christ. He kind of quotes C.S. Lewis in that Jesus was either the Lord He was either a liar or he was a lunatic. And whatever the case, because of the claims he made, it doesn't make sense to me that if if he was a lunatic or a liar, that the whole world would recognize his life as their time. The year of our Lord. So, but there's one thing to be persuaded, and there's another thing to believe. So we're not going to take any more time on that. Uh... But ultimately, what we see happening in verses 40 through 44 is Jesus is causing division. And who these people say Jesus is, is identifying them among their people. There's a division. There's people who want to rest and there's people who don't. But who they say Jesus is identifies them. No one speaks like this man. I love that. Um... And we move through and we see this division and when Jesus speaks and we are confronted with this, when we're confronted with Jesus speaking in the person of Jesus or in the word of Jesus, he demands a decision that inevitably leads to division. He demands a decision that inevitably leads to division. We're going to unpack that. Uh, we're going to also kind of move through, I'm excited about this, um, this next group here, we'll see, um, let me read on. So, no one ever spoke like this man, and then the Pharisees respond to the officers, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him, us who really know things, we're really woke, the educated we know, have we believed in him? Of course, this rhetorical question, they think. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone 
to, to Jesus before and who was one of the Pharisees said to the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you, are you, from, are you from Galilee too? Blech. Search and see that, I added the blech. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Interesting. The Pharisees divide themselves from the people of the land based on education and what they would think holiness. Because it, that makes sense. If I know the law and I've studied it, I'll know how not to break it. And that's why all the people who are in prison are in prison because they didn't know that it's wrong to murder. That's not logical. But yet pride doesn't work on logic. What's happening here is this superiority play, a power play. If what we as humans, our natural heart's tendency is to push towards somehow elevating ourselves, And the way they're doing it here, and they did it in this day, and the Pharisees did it, was by the appearance of holiness, by trying to keep the law, by being educated in the law. And granted, Jesus even proclaims at them, well, your heart is far from me. So they thought that you could be saved through education, because then you would know how not to break the law. So the uneducated were thought to be quick to sin or quick to be misled because they're common folk, they're peasants. They just don't know. This is, this is the reasoning. It's interesting, too, that John 1.46, we went through this, John 1. Uh, <laughs> they say that nothing good can come from Nazareth. What Can anything good come from Nazareth? Who came from Nazareth? Jesus. So they're looking at Jesus, and something that's said about his town is that pretty much everybody despises his area that he comes from. He's probably got the accent from that region. I don't know. I, I love people from New York, but sometimes that hard New York accent is hard for me to hear. And then I'm just like, <sighs> so I can imagine how much this connotation, what you think of someone based on their accent, based on where they come from. But if the Pharisees are so against people of the land being led, misled, then they would definitely be against some person of the land coming up and like leading those people. We can't have this common folk guy leading, leading the people. It's uncomfortable, and I bet that they really didn't like that. So Jesus would be the epitome of that, and uh, of their, their uneducated, imperfect person. We know from a couple of weeks ago that they said, this, how is this man unlearned? How is, how is this man speaking the way he does? But he's never gone through rab- becoming a rabbi uh, all this schooling, he hasn't gotten his MDiv, all that kind of stuff. The Pharisees were so fixated on the fact that he wasn't from Bethlehem. They were fixated on something that they thought they knew, that they wouldn't see the truth. We can be like that too, can't we? We can get so fixated on one thing that we think that we know, whether it's right or wrong, and it causes us to to respond in a not-so-logical way. Have you treated everybody with love? I mean, Scripture says love your enemy. Have we treated everybody with love who differs on you with, with mask protocol? Have you been kind and, and loving to people who differ on you through different current events, whether they're Republican or Democrat? We get so fixated on what we think that we know that we're willing to sacrifice and compromise our own foundational beliefs of loving people. Us in here we would say, yeah, I believe in Christ, so I know love God, love people. But if, I, whoa, I'll love people if they agree with the thing that I think that I know. It's dangerous when we start putting different uh, requirements on when we would love someone. When Jesus says, no, 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 love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. It's kind of like today. We don't care what you're actually saying. We'll cancel you. Um, ironically, though, their, their arguing point, we, like we said before, is wrong. This is something that <laughs> blows me away. So uh, they're so set on seeing him as discredited that they won't see the truth. Um, in that verse 52, they say, search and see that nobody come, no prophet comes from Galilee. What's really interesting, there's two prophets that I know of that come from Galilee. Jonah and Hosea. And they would have known that too. But I think what's being, they're so fixated on discrediting Jesus that they're not willing to give light to any truth. 
They really want to discredit Jesus. So Jonah and Hosea. Jonah is interesting because Jonah is God revealing himself to people, people who would come to know and love him, through a man who would be uh, held in the belly of the dark for three days in water and then barfed up on land and then preaching God's word. Hosea, similarly, I'll read this. I think it'll pop up on the screen. In Hosea 6, it says this. Uh, 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Is it a coincidence that God using Jonah and God using Hosea to reveal himself to his people that would come to love him, that he would use a theme of being uh, in the dark for three days? Did you, did you hear that? On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live with him and that he would reveal himself with some tide of water. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The two guys that they will not uh, recognize, Jonah and Hosea, are actually also, in the way that God revealed himself, uh, testifying that Jesus is of God. It's the same theme here. But they won't see it because they don't want to. They won't see it because they won't see it. I'm stealing that from Tom Schrader. Well, I'm stealing it from Frank, who stole it from Tom Schrader. I switched it to my own way. but So they won't see it. The Pharisees won't see it, except for one. The Pharisees say this rhetorical question. Have any of us learned folk believed in this guy? No. And then Nicodemus stands up and goes, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, I'll read it again in verse 50. So Nicodemus had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the Pharisees, and said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Do you know what the biggest diss or accusation you could do to a Pharisee was? Call him a lawbreaker. That's what, he, that's the, that's what his pride came from, was being able to keep the law better than everybody else. So you call him a lawbreaker, well, he's the same as the people of the land. You may as well be uneducated and unlearned because you can't follow the law yourself. So this was a huge zinger, okay? Now, I, I don't know if we really, I, I want to just jog about who, I'll call him Nick. I'll call him Nick, Nicodemus, Nick. So uh, we met Nick in John 3. He was the man that Jesus spoke to about how you have to be born again if, you, if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Some of us might remember that. So you have to be born again. So then Nicodemus has this experience with Jesus. That's what it said. He went to him before and talked to him. Then we see Nicodemus later being one of the two men who helps prepare Jesus' body for burial. So it seems to me, from what Scripture says about this guy, that he was one that embraced Jesus. And this was the turning point for him. This was huge. He made a decision, and he stuck with it. Also, to be a Pharisee, you're highly revered, you're popular among the popular crowd, so you have all of, all of the things that the world might promise you. And, it, and Nicodemus does something that puts all that in jeopardy. On purpose. Nick is saying to the Pharisees that they're lawbreakers. And it seems like it's a neutral question. Why shouldn't we just follow the law here? No, no, no. They knew the law. So he was confronted with the person of Jesus and he made this decision. And this decision led to an inevitable division. Okay? Uh, this is how they respond to him, and you can kind of hear the sarcasm in it. He, they respond to him with this diss. 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? The only reason you would listen to this guy is if you're biased, and you must be from Galilee. So, are you, from, you must be from Galilee too, which isn't just a, oh, you must be from his hometown. No, it's you must be from that despicable, underrated place too. Overrated? Overrated place too. Yeah, words. Uh, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Jesus demands a decision that leads to division. 
What's crazy is uh, Nicodemus didn't do this by accident. He didn't just say, whoa, 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 let's follow the law. No, he responded and thought about this knowing I'm going to lose my seat among these guys and my power among these guys. But he was confronted with Jesus and he couldn't help but embrace him, which led to the inevitable division from the world. He couldn't help but embrace Jesus, but it required him to reject the world. You can't have both. Nicodemus knew this, and he made a decision. I'm going to flip to Matthew 10. Some of you might be thinking, and I'm sure it's, it's not always the popular thing here, Jesus came to bring peace, though. Isn't he the guy that preached peace? This is Jesus' words. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have, come to bring, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever, loses, whoever loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I love Jesus' illustration with the sword. And something that's interesting about it is when the sword cuts, it doesn't leave middle ground. There's two sides. But what I know is that there's probably people here or watching at home that might be on the fence with Jesus. I just, I just don't know if I really want to commit all, you know, but I like something, so maybe I'll hold on to this part. And Jesus is saying that that's not how it works with the kingdom of God. All in or all out. Two sides. Uh, George Beasley Murray uh, wrote a commentary on John, said, people confronted with the revelation of God in Christ are not allowed to remain neutral. To embrace Jesus, to not embrace Jesus, is to not recognize him as the Lord and thus reject him. So to not fully embrace Jesus is to reject him. Once you are confronted with Jesus, you either divide from the world or you divide from Jesus. To embrace Jesus is to divide from the world. I think about this, man, and it really, so I had to take some time in prayer myself and, and take some inventory of myself. There are things in this world that I really had to repent of that I love more than Jesus. Me. So I seriously, I had to spend some time in prayer that I went to repentance and said, Lord, <laughs> I don't know how to totally cut these things off, but I pray as you came as the sword, I pray you would cut them off. Because there are, I, have, I have a six-month-old daughter. And Jesus straight up said, if you love that daughter more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. That is a bitter pill to swallow, but ends in the sweetest result. My prayer for us is that this uh, passage doesn't lead us to shame. Oh, you know, I've been living on the fence. No, my prayer is that it leads you to a conversation with the Lord. I, I, my prayer is that this passage for us changes our personal prayer life. That we are aware of the things that our heart yearns to long for and grab, but recognizing to embrace Jesus means to let go of those things. And I'm, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that what the Lord's done in me through this passage, he gets to do with the rest of us in our church, that we might continually, not just today, not just tomorrow, but continually find things that we might repent of to better cling to Jesus. This isn't a one-time thing. But Jesus sometimes requires us to give up our comfortability. This is, this is a hard one for us because this is, I think, this is, probably my biggest idol. It's probably the biggest idol of most people in America. We love safety and comfortability. But if we look at the life of the apostles, and if they did it right, 
And they were beaten with the cat and nine tails, their backs ripped to shreds, beaten with rods, crucified. If, if they did it right, that doesn't seem super comfortable. But I bet they were a lot more content than most of us. Sometimes Jesus calls us to give up our comfortability. And the Pharisees wanted their comfortable way of life. The way that they knew and that they were comfortable with, the way that it's been done for ages, while this is just tradition, they weren't willing to give up their comfortable way of life. But Jesus doesn't allow you to just add him to your comfortable way of life. You have to rid yourself of all things and cling to Jesus. So they wanted to kill him. Who you say Jesus is is the most important thing about you. So we might be thinking, where do we go from here? This is heavy stuff. Um, this, is where, this is where I go. Back to verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I feel like a lot of times we get bad connotations with words because we've heard them so long or we've heard them in the wrong context. Repentance is an extension of love. And, and we've, we've moved repentance to be this, repent and believe or you're going to hell. But I want us to hear something. When we're given the opportunity to repent and cling to Jesus, he's asking us to receive eternal life. Not just life when we die and live in eternity, but the fullness of life today in Christ. And he wants that for us. And he's giving us that invitation. Come to Jesus and drink. But when we turn to Jesus and when we turn away from sin and we embrace Jesus, it changes us inevitably. Scripture is clear about that. That from the evidence of our heart being changed, our faith produces works. James says that. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. So inevitably it moves to works. It's not that it comes from works that gives us this relationship with Jesus. It's that the evidence of our heart being changed, the evidence of us drinking from Jesus, is that good works come. So I'm going to talk about a little, uh, some of the things that Jesus has called us to is regarding good works. Jesus' call on believers is to make disciples. Who are you discipling? A lot of us could say, well, I go to church. Ah, Jesus said, make disciples. Who are you meeting with? Who are you giving your life for? Who are you ser- how are you serving the local church, which the mission of the local church is to make disciples? Jesus' call on husbands is to love their wives the way, not just love them, but love them the way that Jesus loved his church and that he gave himself up for her. Husbands, how are you giving yourself up for your wives? This is convicting for me. Jesus' call on parents is to love their children and raise them up in truth. Parents, how are you discipling your children? Do you spend time with them in the word? Do you pray with them regularly? Jesus' call on kids is to respect and honor their parents. Kids, are you respecting and honoring your parents? Let me just say this. Everybody in here is somebody's kid. And you never stop honoring your father and mother. Are we living the fruits of the Spirit as Galatians 5.22 talks about? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we pushing away the works of the flesh that are evident? Are we trying to cut those off? Sexual immorality, idolatry, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Fits of anger. Say it one more. Fits of anger. Work of the flesh. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions not based on Christ. Envy. Drunkenness. Orgies and things like these. Galatians 5. I feel like for me, uh, one uh, past, uh, Anthony G said this. He's the pastor of uh, Flagstaff. He said, I feel like a Christian should be obsessed with the fruits of the Spirit. <sighs> Profound. My wife brought that up to me, and I was like, you right, girl. That's good. 
But to grow in these things, it requires you to drink of Jesus. Let's again not separate that this is evidence of you drinking of Jesus and treasuring him as the life giver. What makes it possible is that Jesus, being God, came in the likeness of man, lived a perfect life without sin, which freed him up to die in place of our sin. Oops, sorry. I like the thing, because, sorry. But he died in place of our sin because he didn't have sin to die for his own. So he came as that spotless, without imperfection lamb that died in our place. We can't have a relationship with God in our sin. But if we embrace Jesus, it's his perfect life that God sees on us. And then we have a relationship with God. Jesus came and died on the cross as that sacrificial lamb. Three days later, rose again. And he calls us to be baptized in that when we believe that. Again, water, three days, water, super cool. God does things on purpose. And if whoever believes in him and confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, they will not perish. So it's not today just, hey, go do good works. It's drink of Jesus. And I hope that this changes our personal prayer lives. I'll call up the band right now. Um, So we're going to move into a time of response. And... uh, we're, gonna, we're going to profess that we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by taking the bread, eating his flesh, and drinking the juice, drinking his blood, and identifying with Jesus. And in the process of this, I would encourage you to just remember, for us to embrace Jesus, it is to reject the world. To love Jesus more than everything else. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, none of the words that I say mean anything unless you put meaning to them. It's your word that matters. So Lord, I pray anything that I said that wasn't of you would fall on deaf ears. Um, Lord, I pray that you are exalted in the midst of this. I pray that people would have their hearts softened to turn to you in repentance. Um, And also knowing that you're a loving Father with open arms waiting to embrace them back. Lord God, I do pray for the direction of our church as we continue to work through everything that's gone on in the past year. Um, Lord, I pray that the only place where we're drinking water or looking for life is in you. pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. for us How vast beyond all measure That he should give his only son To make a wretch his treasure His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man.
gives no power, no wisdom. Let's sing this out. But I will boast in Jesus Thank you for being here with us this morning and worshiping with us. I want to read this prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. It seems to fit with everything that Trey uh, spoke to us about this morning. I'll read this prayer as our benediction and as, as our blessing as we go. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.